0: Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com and follow the link to subscribe. And now enjoy our latest episode.
1: Both sides journalism is also a real problem in that it gives equal weight to issues that do not have, you know, equally weighted sides and that may have like 15 different sides, for example.
0: You'd be hard pressed to find anyone either in or out of journalism who doesn't recognize that our industry is seriously broken. If the first step in solving a problem is acknowledging that there is a problem, then what's next? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Anna-Lynn Gusick is executive director and founder of The Conversationalist, an independent nonprofit feminist publication focused on global perspectives, amplifying marginal voices. Anna is also the host of Unbreaking Media, a podcast that examines culture and politics through an intersectional feminist lens. Anna, welcome to It's All Journalism.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's always a pleasure to talk to a fellow podcaster because... <laughs> yes. <laughs> because we love to talk. So tell me about how did you get into journalism? What got you interested in writing? Tell me about that journey.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I've always been interested in writing. I came into journalism having previously worked in law and academia. So I arrived in from adjacent fields, I should say, and I had uh, gone to law school, never practiced, gone on to study legal history, and. Specifically writers and their place in authoritarianism and censorship, dissent, you name it. So a lot of concepts that are relevant to journalism. And uh, when I left academia, that seemed like the best fit for me. <laughs> Be writing on current events as opposed to past events.
0: Cool. Then which writers were you know, were you interested in?
1: My personal hero is Vasily Grossman. He was a uh, a Soviet Jewish author who was persecuted by the state, both for his novels primarily, but he was also well-known as a journalist. He was with the Red Army at Stalingrad and reporting on the war from the front lines and was informing the rest of the country about what was happening and always had a very human-centered approach, which I think is something that I've also carried along with me.
0: Uh, He was
1: also an archivist in a way in that he was collecting documentation of Nazi atrocities on Soviet territory, which also got him in trouble (laughs) after the war. (laughs) Didn't make him so popular with Stalin. So he was persecuted for a variety of reasons. But I was always so fascinated with his evolution as a person and a lot of the ethical quandaries that he came up against that I think are also relevant to today and how he cared about truth and cared about representing people accurately and celebrating them, that that was so separate from ideology for him. And I think it speaks to the way writing and fiction even can compete with propaganda for truth.
0: For sure. And we've had plenty of examples of that. We're all journalists, we're all writers. And, you know, when we cover things, we have these platitudes that we sort of have been taught and then sort of inform who we are and the job that we're supposed to do. But quite often, you know, when you're covering something that's dense or important, you know, everything that you read should be important, but it always, it doesn't always work out that way. But you know, you do have these moments where you, you're trying to like, who am I in this mix? What do I believe in and what is my journalism doing? You know, we've had guests on the podcast that I know that they've gotten to a point where you know, they're looking at the way they're reporting a story and saying, I don't believe in this, or am I making the situation worse? You, know, If you're a, you know, thinking, breathing human being, and you have to have some sense of, you know, right and wrong, I mean, you're gonna, you're gonna challenge yourself at some point. Because, you know, that's part of what we do, we put ourselves in, in situations where we're not just reporting something, we're reporting something that's you know, may have a huge impact on people.
1: Absolutely. And so thinking about the framing and who you're including, who you're not including, and how far back do you want to go and things like that. Like it's all, you know, it matters.
0: Yeah, exactly. So anyway, we've already got got off on (laughs) a tangent tangent here. So tell me about The Conversationalist. What led you to launch that? What were you trying to do?
1: We originally launched The Conversationalist really after Trump won. In a way, I was glad to be a free at that moment because I was very concerned with what was happening in the States. And I was concerned that it was not being reported on accurately and that specifically American exceptionalism was really getting in the way. And, you know, this idea that we are superior and therefore have nothing to learn from other countries or that we're not comparable. And I, I thought that was wrong and very narrow look on what was happening in this country. So we started as a medium blog, and then we eventually became a nonprofit and really wanted to create a platform for experts, people with skin in the game, people who knew their subject matter deeply to be writing the stories that were not getting published elsewhere. And primarily that was, you know, a lot of women, women of color, people whose expertise is not is more easily dismissed, I should say, for reasons outside of the, the, you know, their knowledge itself, and a place where they could tell their stories. Yeah.
0: Who do you see is your audience for this?
1: Who's our audience for this? I think our primary audience is women, though I think that our stories are for everybody. Our feminism is for everybody, and I don't think it's exclusionary. People who want more depth, who want to know a fuller story, who have the attention span for longer articles who are are curious about people they've never heard of from places they never heard of but who want to relate and who are looking for some sort of you know universal in the particular right so that the, the more local you get in a lot of ways the more resonance you can have
0: yeah well, first of all, I want to get this sort of out of the way, somebody coming to your side, if the conversationalist, you describe yourself as a feminist publication or you're, you're viewing things through a feminist lens, I mean, is somebody going to say, oh, well, this is just some sort of advocacy group, or this is some sort of, you know, group to be dismissed. I mean, is sure. that something that, that you, you might have laid against it? If I'm just sort of making a a generalization that doesn't apply, that's fine, but you can dismiss things.
1: No, I mean, I think there are certainly people who are going to see that word and who are going to be turned off by that word. We're probably not for those people at the
0: same time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, if you're having questions, perhaps this is not for you.
1: Perhaps it's not for you. But also maybe you're curious and you don't know what we mean by that. So when when I think of feminism, to me, it's very much about the personal and political, right? So that the way that our lives play out, the way our relationships, our work is not separate from politics and it is not separate from the larger dynamics at play. And so to separate those two and to treat certain subjects as not as serious and not as worthy of investigation, I think is wrong. So in some ways we're, we're elevating certain stories that other people might write off as frivolous. And at the same time, I also think we're bringing a larger perspective to other stories that may get covered elsewhere, but are not getting the same lens Are not considering how some of these stories impact marginalized people, vulnerable communities. What is the the human impact of the story? So that's what I think of as feminist. Yeah.
0: Okay. I just wanted to sort of put it in context of of how we're discussing this. Are the people who write for you, are they, are they freelancers? Do you have a, a regular crew of people who write for you? Do people pitch you stories?
1: Yes, we do. So I am not in charge of our editorial. Our editor, Gina May, she's fantastic. She's the one who people pitch and who is responsible for all the content that goes up on the site. We do have a stable writers that have been working with us for years now. So we have people who have been writing for a while, but everyone is a freelancer at this point. Yeah, we don't have any staff writers. I mean, I write for us (laughs) with regularity, but I wouldn't count myself in that. But yeah, no, we have we've got a lot of uh, repeat writers and then also new ones. What's I think special about being an independent media outlet is that we are more likely to take chances on young writers, people who don't have the same resume or experience, but who are talented and have something to say and could use some mentorship. So providing a platform for for young writers and for people who say like they're just not getting their story. Placed somewhere else for whatever reason, but really believe in it, I guess.
0: So we talk about marginalized people. We talk about women and communities that don't usually get covered. I mean, how are you identifying what you want to cover and what you want to write about?
1: Yeah. So we are slower. We're not as connected to the 24-hour news cycle and we publish less frequently, in part because we want to pay people. (laughs) And (laughs) And we believe that, you know, uh, part of our mission is also to treat our writers and the people that work with us with, you know, dignity and respect. And so we do less, but we produce really quality work. So the pieces last a long time also. Like I think a lot of our archive really holds up, which is something I'm very proud of in this moment when things have been very much, you know, very chaotic and transitional. People either pitch us stories, you know, that they want to write. Sometimes it's more newsy. We had a piece on the the Tennessee anti-drag bill recently, but then we also just recently published a piece on long COVID skepticism from Anna Hamilton, who is a non-binary disabled writer, talking about why these invisible illnesses, the first thing we jump to is, are they real? (laughs) And why that's problematic. (laughs) So yeah, we we do a range of stories.
0: So we pick guests for a lot of various reasons, and I saw a couple of the stories that you had done, and then I saw the Unbreaking News, which is your podcast, which is focused on putting the news back together, I guess, Unbreaking It, and that, that really said, yeah, I want to talk to you. I want to have a conversation about this. Okay, so what is broken in news from your perspective, and then what can we do about it?
1: Well, certainly when it comes to political reporting, I feel like too deferential in many ways, and I find that really problematic. I think that, you know, both sides journalism is also a real problem in that it gives equal weight to issues that do not have, you know, equally weighted sides and that may have like 15 different sides, for example, right? Like we don't know. So that reduces the complexity and then also creates false equivalences. I find that distressing. On a personal level, I do not think our industry is particularly well equipped to handle rising authoritarianism.
0: Yeah, and I think it probably a lot of that has to do with you know our capitalist system. I mean, here we are. You're a nonprofit. Uh, I've spoken to so many different journalists and organizations that have sprouted up to sort of address these different problems, separate from the you know cable news, separate from you know the large daily news newspaper. They have a different you know financial structure, but they're not big. They do what they do, but a hey, the thing I find most troubling is that. I'm having more and more conversations about democracy than I thought I would at this point in my career. And then the other one that, you know, what has happened over the last eight years is seeing that these tenets that had been put forward as this is your guidebook, this is the way a responsible journalist acts. There are things in it that many journalists don't understand well, or they're poorly applying. Balance is the one that sort of really stands out. You know, there are plenty of people who are dissatisfied with, you know, I'm covering City Hall or I'm covering this protest. You know, I'm going to write the boilerplate story, but I don't think that this is maybe what the story is, or I feel that I should be doing something different. Or maybe they feel they want to write from a perspective. And as soon as you write from a perspective, then suddenly you're not being fair. You're not, you know, you're not including all the different voices.
1: I mean, I think we openly have a perspective and I think that's just sort of, we lead with that and we're honest about it.
0: Yeah. And and I think it's a smart thing to do.
1: Yeah. So to acknowledge it and at the same time to provide, you know, if there's contradictory evidence out there, if there's, you have to address everything. It's not about leaving things out to make a point, but rather it's about contextualizing and yes, that maybe this is the story reporting, maybe it's like a small blip in a larger sea, right? And so how does it relate? I don't know. I guess for me, it was, I've seen how democracy failed in other countries, right? And I've seen the rollback. I've seen the decline. But these were, of course, from countries that most Americans look down on, at least in terms of their governance already, right? So they don't want to relate. They have a lot to learn, a lot to lose in this country. So it's funny because, you know, I come from immigrants. My family came from the Soviet Union. And so you can't tell them anything about America. They think it is the best place on the planet. They've done well here. They became white here. (laughs) They were Jewish and so, you know, discriminated against. Now they come here and it's not the same. But they don't know American history. They don't understand that, for example, yeah, what you were saying earlier that a lot of the things that are happening now are not new, right? So You look at far-right Christian nationalism, that's been around (laughs) for a while now. You look at how Roe got overturned and you see decades of very explicit advocacy to overturn it. And the problem was that people didn't believe them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, or give them credence. You know, oh, they're just doing what they're doing. You know, what's happening in the state house now has been happening for decades. And there's a reason why you know, a minority is controlling the majority in a lot of state houses and are trying to find ways to limit your ability to practice democracy. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Voter suppression just, is not new in this country.
0: <laughs> and we can even look in the big, you know, the big letters of voter you know, suppression, just look at Jim Crow laws. You can say that it's just, you know, maybe that wasn't applied to white people in a way before, because it didn't need to be from someone's perspective so apparently it does need to be now because you can't have you can't make things easy for people to vote because people will take advantage of that and they'll go crazy with this democracy thing so you say you started this after trump when was this like the wake up moment for you that oh this is something that i really need to focus on this is something i need to be a part of
1: I mean, my concern, frankly, started when he was still running, because to me, I, I knew he had a shot and that any shot would, felt like too much of a shot for me of winning. So I was sort of raising the alarm as like in a scholar of authoritarianism and at the time just being like, oh, boy, guys, this is how this happens. The praising, just the whole, you know, his style. I remember I had a moment. It was when this was already after he'd won and the New York Times was reporting about mar-a-lago and his you know wish to call it the winter white house they just threw it in there as if that was a, a, a normal thing i was like they're doing i had a trauma reaction yeah. i was looking at it on my the phone trauma reaction. and i i like, threw it like, <laughs> through my phone i was like ah. wow uh, i was really upset i felt unsafe in a way because i was like i feel like they're doing his pr for him and they don't see it and I was like, we need a critical coverage of the guy who's, you know, wants to create Gatsby in the White House with his, you know, resort.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously it surprised a lot of people upon reflection. It's concerning that, you know, to your point, there was nobody sort of challenging it, being, you know, sort of dogged about it. What was even more disturbing was it became, you know, it became a ratings thing. You know, the more crazy things that are said by a presidential candidate that, you know, the more likely it's going to be lead the news and then lead the discussions, not understanding that that's exposure. And I think people began to understand that afterwards, but then it became, well, how do you balance that then? You know, I think there are still people who are struggling with that now, which is really kind of disconcerting. But the idea is, you know, to stand up and to challenge something. You call out a lie.
1: One of the things I think that the bigger problem is, of course, with access journalism, with someone like that, they don't keep you around unless they're gaining more from you than you are from them.
0: And you're not going to get the inner story unless you do, you play the game. And, and that's not even about authoritarianism. That's just kind of the way the game has always been played. They're not going to let me in the White House if I keep asking this question.
1: Right, exactly. If you've done your job really, maybe you're going to get thrown out. <laughs> So that's a very difficult path to walk. But also, I think then that became infinitely more difficult with someone like Trump. And then also, again, with the personality cult that he developed, really. And when I look at Fox, for example, and I look at the larger conservative infosphere, it's very closed off to the rest of us. Like, there's no penetrating it at this point. That, I think it's very concerning that there are people who you can't reach
0: let's talk a little bit about american exceptionalism and to be honest i'm a a white male in in his 60s who can honestly say that i was vaguely aware of that the idea of american exceptionalism but you know have become more knowledgeable about it and once you begin to view things through that that lens then a lot of things make a lot of sense so what is the problem with american exceptionalism what is it that we're we're missing or does it making us blind to
1: it's interesting because I, I see American exceptionalism, I mean, the dominant form of it that you see most of the time is this idea that we are the best. Following the Cold War, right? When we think we're supposed to won it, democracy won, we're in this sort of, we were in this moment of like, we were at the top of the game without any real competition. And I think it went to our heads. And it makes you more ignorant, right? When you stop paying attention and when you stop taking feedback and you stop being able to perceive how other people perceive you and what your impact is on the rest of the world. Because a lot of what happens in America affects the rest of the world for better and for worse. So the rest of the world is paying attention to us, whether they like to or not, because it's relevant to them. And Americans, we don't have that same sense of, there are other parts of the world that affect us and therefore we need to pay attention. So we don't have a real sense of our place in the world amongst other countries. I think it also swings the other way. Like you have leftists, for example, who treat the U.S. as uniquely bad, which is also a problem. Like, you know, I look at places that that people that say, you know, Russia can do no wrong because they're countering the United States. And I'm like, well, there's a little genocidal invasion happening right now. So maybe we... And they're like if u.s imperialism i'm like so the russian empire doesn't count (laughs) as an empire so it can swing both ways and i think it's they're both inaccurate i think that is the biggest point right is that it is inaccurate
0: it makes it difficult for us to you know change our perspective and maybe pursue things in a different way. Now what I mean we talked about unbreaking the media and I think it's not something that's going to be done in a you know 40 minute conversation. Mm-hmm. But if you could see something change in journalism what would you want it to be? I
1: think that it's you know even like Orwell wrote about this when it comes to writing about authoritarianism, writing about manipulations, writing about propaganda is that clear language is so essential. And I see so much time wasted debating The definitions of things that actually have a consensus clear definition. It's something that academics absolutely, for example, looking at fascism or looking at January sixth, should we call it a coup? Spent so much time whether we should call it a coup that we didn't actually discuss how this run up happened in public. Right, more time to say is it? Here's why it's not the thing that we say it is, and therefore you shouldn't worry about it. Right, it was more concerned with people's feelings about. How, we don't want people to panic. We don't want them to be frightened. We don't want them to worry about the fragility of our democracy. And so we're avoiding, even talking about lies, right? You calling something a lie. That is a clear, yeah. right? Who do you Approvable
0: truth. You should be able to say, this is approvable truth.
1: This is approvable truth. And you just said the thing that is not true. And I don't need to know your intent. I don't need to know it was in your heart at that moment to know that you said something you said a lie who we give the benefit of the doubt to there the bias is there in terms of we give specifically like yeah older white men the benefit of the doubt when it comes to their intentions with anything like it must have been a mistake it must have been a mistake despite every all evidence to the contrary right <laughs> we give them the benefit of doubt who gets the benefit of the doubt and then who is treated immediately with suspicion and why right? And who gets grilled over things that are often out of their control versus, yeah, who gets treated like they're harmless. It's like a character judgment that comes in that is unspoken of, we're going to assume you're honest. We're going to assume you're lying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see that reflected in so many different ideas that are being thought about the way we cover the news. For example, an easy one to point to, like crime reporting. It's like, Every face is black. And if you don't, if for some reason you don't include the person's race, you know, they ask, why didn't you include the race? Because, you know, including the race would, then it fits into whatever, whatever narrative anybody has. Either you're not reporting the race. That's because you're trying to hide the truth. If you do report the race, then that feeds whatever the particular narrative they have. If you're a news outlet and you develop a policy where if you say, you know, police are looking for a black man pick one. There are millions of black men. So we need characteristics. We need, you know, how tall they were, how much they weigh, what were they wearing? You know, all these other details that actually identify that person's individually. But there are plenty of people that, oh no, no, you're looking for, I need to know whether I'm looking for a white man or a black man. And that doesn't, A, it doesn't help the police really. Well, it can in a very abstract way, but I don't want to go down that, continue a narrative. But, Something as simple as that, just reporting a crime, can have huge impact in lots of different ways. So then you you have to think of, well, what's my policy? How do I justify one thing? Why do I need to show somebody's picture if all they did was that, you know, they got a speeding ticket? What crimes warrant that? Why is it important? It's one thing if you're looking for a suspect, it's another thing if somebody's arrested, you know, it's that level of thinking that needs to be applied to everything.
1: Absolutely. Well, and also cops lie all the time. Why are you reporting on the cops uncritically, right? Like just because they said it, does that mean it's true? We don't know.
0: Well, no, but I, I'm supposed to source it right? because otherwise if I just say it and I don't source it, then maybe he's making that up. Maybe he's like, you know, doing some sort of narrative. I mean, yes, source everything that you're doing. And that goes into the other thing about transparency. At the end of the day that's the thing that's going to save us if it's going to save anything is the people understanding who we are and why we do it why we make choices about what stories we're going to cover how we cover them what sources we don't talk to or include in a story you No, know, they're not factual
1: yeah i mean i think just giving more information is better right like i think it's like here's here's where we're coming from i think i mean I don't think there's a way to write something without having some agenda or perspective. And I think the more honest you can be about it and where you're coming from, the better.
0: And admit yeah. when you make a mistake. Oh, yes. I love that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important.
0: Keep it moving. Yeah. yeah keep it moving. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, after this very meandering discussion, we got to sort of the point, which is (laughs) transparency and admitting when you're wrong and white men are given too much deference.
1: Yeah. In a way, that's part of why I think a lot of the work we do the conversation is very good is we're used to not being heard and to having to do excellent work in order to be taken seriously and to have covered everything and backed everything up. And, you know, there's no room to be as lazy because- you're going to get called on it because people don't trust you in the same way. And in a way that makes the work better, just being explicitly partial does not mean that the story is less true. Right. I think that that in many ways, you know, you can gain an accuracy just from having an understanding of dynamics or like, you know, what's at stake.
0: I like to think of in terms of fairness, have you been fair to the different sides? If you're just ignoring a side willy nilly, just because, well, I don't believe in that. Well, you should at least, if it's relevant to whatever you're writing about, you should include something about it because, you know, to show at the very least that, yes, I've, I have considered that.
1: Absolutely. But, it's bad work if you're ignoring like relevant information, yeah.
0: On all sides. Yes. Anyway, so I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what we accomplished except uh, we just had a good conversation. <laughs> yeah. So, wonderful, if somebody hosts the, or started the conversation list, I only imagine that that were where we would end up. <laughs> so anyway, Anna, Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed our talk.
1: Yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who report the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. To make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer, Amber Healy writes our web content. Amia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Duprey composed our theme music. Carolyn Bilefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.